1: Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The presidential rhetoric and the exchange of insults back and forth between President Trump and Kim Jong-un has heightened the sense of crisis and, I think, created an environment where the risk of miscalculation is much higher. I do support a more robust effort to push back on Iran's destabilizing behavior in the region, but we have to be smart about it. Let's keep the nuclear issue off the table for right now because it's it's contained. Putin's number one objective is to stay in power.
0: But big picture, how do we deter him?
1: The number one thing is he has to start paying a price. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of thecypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly.
0: In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. <laughs> When Michelle Flournoy was appointed to the top policy job at the Department of Defense, she was the senior most woman ever to serve there. President Obama asked her to be a secretary of defense. President Trump, his deputy secretary of defense. She is widely respected as a defense and foreign policy expert. She and I spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours together in the White House Situation Room. Today I sat down with her and we talked about everything from North Korea and Iran to China and Russia. This is Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. It is an honor to sit down with my former colleague from the National Security Council Deputies Committee, Michelle Flournoy. Michelle is currently the CEO of the Center for a New American Security. She is a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. She's a senior advisor to the Boston Consulting Group, and she is a member of the Defense Policy Board. So it is great, great to have you with us, Michelle.
1: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: We got to know each other when I was the deputy director of CIA and you were the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. I think we probably saw each other more in the White House Situation (laughs) Room than we saw our spouses. (laughs) That's probably true. But inside the Beltway, people know what the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy is, but outside the Beltway, I'm not so sure. So what is that job all about?
1: So the undersecretary for policy job in the Pentagon is really almost like a second deputy job where you're responsible for supporting the secretary in all of his or her international engagements, his role in the NSC process, the interagency process. And also helping to support the secretary in providing civilian oversight of military plans and operations. So it covers the world. It covers every functional issue, intense engagement with the U.S. military day to day. One of the best jobs in Washington, for so, sure. So
0: what I found was that it is the substantive job, right, at the department. It wasn't the deputy secretary who was coming to deputies meetings. It was, it was you,
1: so the deputy, because DOD is such a huge business enterprise, the deputy secretary's role tends to be more like a COO, where they're really running the business of the department, the defense enterprise, day to day. And most secretaries use the undersecretary for policy as that policy deputy.
0: So how does a person who grew up in Beverly Hills, went to- In
1: a rent control department, <laughs> went for to, the record. Went to Beverly Hills High School,
0: <laughs> end up in international affairs. Where did that Where did uh, that interest come from?
1: So I had the opportunity as a high school student to do an exchange program abroad one summer. And I was supposed to better my French, but I got put with a Flemish family in Belgium. But I had the most wonderful experience. It kind of opened my eyes to the rest of the world. And I came back from that experience as a 16-year-old thinking, I want to do something that takes me out into the world, something international. And I didn't know what it was but that was what really wet my appetite.
0: And you went to Harvard and did you what did you study there?
1: So I studied what's called social studies, which is sort of a multidisciplinary political science, history, economics and so forth. But you with a focus on international relations. And then I had an advisor there who said, if you're serious about international relations as an American, at some point you should get a non-American perspective. And so he really pushed me to try to go abroad for my graduate education, and I ended up doing my master's at Oxford to get that non-American perspective on, you know, the U.S. role in the and world. And
0: that very different approach to teaching, right? The tutorial yes, approach? Yes, yes.
1: Much more you are responsible for your own education. There's not a lot of spoon-fed, you know, work. It's very much, you can sink or swim. Yeah.
0: It's on, It on tends your, to be one-on-one?
1: One-on-one tutorials and so forth, yeah. yeah.
0: So a lot of reading, and then you go in once a week. A lot weekend. of reading,
1: a lot of writing, and just being absolutely pushed to the wall, right. pushed to your Actual no limit. No. No hiding in the back <laughs> no of the hiding. room like I used to do. <laughs> absolutely not.
0: Worldview. Your worldview, right? You have a view of the proper, appropriate role of the U.S. in the world. So what is that and where did it come from?
1: So I think I see the U.S. role as a leader in the international community as indispensable and pretty unique. And I think that comes from a reading of 20th century or uh, history, um, uh, the Oxford approach to international relations is a big dose of historical perspective. And certainly when you look in the 1900s all the way through where we are today, when the U.S. is present and leading, we tend to be able to build coalitions of like-minded states to actually solve problems or at least mitigate risk. When the U.S. retrenches and is absent and creates vacuums, very bad things happen. World wars, the growth of powers that may have very, you know, interests that are very antithetical to ours and so forth. The
0: vacuum tends to get filled by Bad guys.
1: Exactly. So I continue to believe that U.S. engagement, U.S. leadership, with a mind to what are, where our interests lie, what's really important. We can't be everywhere and do everything for sure, but we also can't afford to be absent.
0: So there's a trend in America. Away from that, right? Away from that view. There's a, there's a trend that says we have our own problems here at home. Let's fix those problems. Let's, that's, that's where we should put our resources. Mm-hmm. Let the rest of the world take care of itself. Let some of our allies step up. I share your view mm-hmm. 100% mm-hmm. about what our role in the world is. But how do we convince the rest of America that what you just described is in their interest?
1: First of all, I think we need to take the conversation outside the beltway. Actually, CNAS right now is doing a project to take the conversation to 10 major cities in the heartland of the United States, not to preach at people, but to more than anything, listen. What are their concerns? Where are they, you know, focused? What are their ideas and so forth? But I think it, it takes really having a conversation about what has worked and what hasn't. I mean, I don't blame people for being skeptical in light of how the Iraq war was conducted and turned out, in light of how difficult it has been to achieve our objectives in Afghanistan, in light of some of the disconnect between what many of the experts believe to be the value of free trade versus some of the dislocation that Americans are experiencing in places like the manufacturing sector. So we have to have a more listening and brass tacks conversation with people about what's actually happening, why, what do we learn from this, but also to talk about the risks of US retrenchment based on our knowledge of history based on what we can see happening today right now
0: so let's talk a little bit about your career in government your your first job was in the clinton administration I believe. How did you get that job? And you know, what advice would you give a young person who's interested in being a policymaker and wants to get into government? What would you tell them?
1: So I had been working in the think tank world for about eight years at that point. And when the Clinton administration was elected, I had not been involved in the campaign. I don't even think I was a declared Democrat at that point. But three people that I had worked with or for were going into the administration as assistant secretaries. And I was fortunate to get calls from all three. And at that point, I got a really important piece of advice. Someone told me, choose the boss, not the job. So I had the perfect job description in front of me for one one thing, but I ended up choosing the person who was storied as a mentor and a developer of young people. And that was Ted Warner, who uh, was assistant secretary in the Pentagon for strategy and requirements, and he wanted to reestablish a strategy office. It's kind of scary to think there was a time in the Pentagon that didn't have a strategy office, but he wanted to reestablish that, and so I was brought in as part of the team to do that, which was sort of like creating an, an internal think tank inside the Pentagon. Very exciting.
0: And that mentorship that you got from him is, I know, something that you have carried through in, in everything that you've done.
1: I love working with young people, but I also feel like at the end of the day, when you look back over a career, one of the most powerful and impactful and enduring things you can do is to help the next generation or generations grow and develop and get launched into careers of public service. I think that's the most lasting legacy that, you know, one can have.
0: So is the think tank world a a, a place for young people to be seen? Absolutely. um, And develop the kind of relationships that would get them into government for the first time?
1: Absolutely. I think one of the things we did when we started CNAS is try to really make developing the next generation an explicit part of the mission. You know, you can go to other think tanks around town and the junior people are a little bit like, I don't want to say slave labor but they are they're working to support the senior people having a voice, as opposed to developing Can their, their own, own voice. And what we do here is we give people media training. We it's rare to let, we let an, even an intern leave without having published something under their own name. We give people credit when they've contributed to writing something as a co-author. So it's not just they do the work and the senior person puts their name on it. All of that is in service of you, you know we want people to leave here with an established voice, with a known expertise, and with a some help in launching their career.
0: Is there some special advice that you would give a young woman who wants to
1: make her way in this in this um, profession? I'd say, come on in. The water's fine. You know, I think that there are more and more women coming into the national security domain and into the defense domain. And don't be put off by the fact that there may not be as many women role models. Or do your best work. Be excellent in what you do. Find your voice, and you know, you'll make you know, you'll make your way.
0: These are jobs. you you know as you know better than anybody jobs that are long hours mm-hmm. you're never off the job the no. phone never stops ringing your mind is always is always there right these are tough jobs on families what advice would you give to people in balancing that family Work.
1: First, it helps to have a partner who's really supportive of your career and who's willing to chip in and make it work. I also think it, it takes a village. You, you know, and I have both had that. Yes, yes, I have had that and enjoyed it tremendously. The, it also takes a village in that, you know, whether it's family in the area or a nanny or just the generosity of friends and neighbors, I, I feel like I am still paying back carpool IOUs from the period when I was in government (laughs) and other parents were taking my kids to sports practices and so forth. Um, So, you, you know, you need a community to step up and help support you in some way.
0: So let's shift, Michelle, to the issues. And I want to start with President Trump's foreign policy. Have you seen enough to put a label on it? How would you characterize it the approach that that he's taking to the world.
1: You know, I I think the only label I could put on it at this point is deconstruction or deconstructionism. It seems the only unifying theme of what he's doing is trying to dismantle the Obama administration's legacy. And I say that as someone who was both proud to work for President Obama, but also, you know, has had critiques of what uh, the administration did. But, you know, think about it. The abandonment of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, negotiations, which would have been the most seminal achievement to keep U.S. leadership in Asia for the next 50 years. And despite Um, the fact
0: that Secretary Clinton opposed it during the campaign, it it almost certainly would have passed in the lame duck session. I I think that's right. From a policy perspective, she was supportive of it.
1: Going after the Iran deal, trying to dismantle that, even though it's serving US interests and keeping Iran farther from a nuclear weapon than it otherwise would be. The climate, pulling out of the Paris climate deal when he didn't need to do that. He could have revised the U.S. goals unilaterally. You can just go on and on. The only logic that I can find in his foreign policy so far is trying to dismantle his predecessor's legacy and taking actions that he sees as sort of improving his own brand, if you will. Beyond that, I don't see And those two things are probably linked. Yes. Right? Yeah. But I don't see a coherent... Alternative foreign policy or even worldview
0: the one place where there might be one let me just th- let me just push this idea and get your reaction to it. The one place where there might be one is on the military side. Essentially, Jim Mattis has maintained President Obama's approach to the trouble spots where the US military is involved. He's accelerated some things, taken some additional risks. But the fundamental policy of not fighting these wars ourselves, but supporting those who are, mm-hmm. has been maintained. Mm-hmm. And Afghanistan, the decision on Afghanistan certainly turned out different than, than what the president originally yeah. had wanted, I think. Yep. So there seems to be seems to be a little bit more coherence there, probably because of the secretary.
1: I think that's right. I think that Secretary Mattis and General Kelly and others have been able to have the president's ears on certain things, particularly involving the use of the military instrument. I think when I look at those issues, while I'm glad to see the continuity, where I see a deficiency is there's really no diplomatic or political dimension of the strategy to complement the military piece. One of my key takeaways of working in and out of the Pentagon for so many years and just being a student of how the U.S. military is used is that it can only get you so far towards your ultimate objectives. It's it's like they can take the football down the field to the 20-yard line, but they can't actually make the touchdown by themselves. You have to be able to convert that military progress into diplomatic leverage that then gets you to your goals. And so where is that diplomatic strategy for Afghanistan? Where is it for Syria? Where is it right now, even for North Korea? That's what I'm not seeing.
0: I think that Iraq and Syria is a great example of that because we are about ready to to take away the caliphate, right? Right. But that doesn't mean ISIS is going to be defeated. Right. That's going to require a political solution in both Iraq and Syria that gives some voice, some sense of stake in the future of their country to the Sunnis. Yes. And I, I, I don't see that at all.
1: I don't see it at all. And as long as those Sunni communities feel marginalized, persecuted, targeted, you will have the fertile soil for ISIS 3.0. You know, if you had al-Qaeda in Iraq, now then you had ISIS, you're going to have something else that comes back unless you tend to the fundamental grievances and tend to the issue of political inclusion.
0: And and what's happening in Kurdistan right now is a really good example of Mm. a tension that was there for a long time that the defeat of ISIS in Iraq has now opened up and we're not managing at all. We're We seem seem to to be be on the sidelines. Right. The future of our military, a lot of discussion about that, resources Mm -hmm. for structure, strategy. How do you think about that?
1: I think the U.S. military, first of all, it has to change and evolve if it's going to maintain its edge and be able to deter conflict and prevail in conflict if necessary in the future. And I think it has three big obstacles to that. Number one is total uncertainty and unpredictability in the budgetary environment. DOD has not had an approved budget, you know, that it could count on with any kind of time horizon For years. And that prevents us or prevents the department from making the smart investments in the future, being able to manage their resources as well as they can. Do you have some hope that that's going to get fixed? Well, I mean, both. You know, members of Congress and the administration are talking about a higher defense budget and putting more investment in. But there seems to be no plan for actually removing the Budget Control Act caps and the threat of sequestration. Unless that happens, mm. this is all talk. Mm. So we'll see what happens. I want to stay hopeful so I can keep getting out of bed in the morning. But mm. <laughs> the second challenge is technology is rapidly changing. And the cutting edge has moved from DoD research and development programs into the commercial sector. So this is IT, cyber energy, directed energy weapons, unmanned systems, a, you know AI, artificial intelligence, and so forth. That's all, it's a different problem for the department to be able to access that in the commercial world and bring it in. And we haven't cracked the code on how to do that. But if we don't, we're going to be left behind. And the third thing is the world is The dynamics in the world are shifting, and while we may be focused on the threat from ISIS, the crisis with North Korea, the fundamental shifts, the tectonic shifts that are happening is the rise of a very powerful China, who will compete with us in Asia for influence, and the resurgence of a weak but very dangerous and well-armed Russia. And so the return of a period of true great power competition is happening and yet when you look at the defense focus, uh, where people are bandwidth-wise day-to-day and where we're investing in terms of our budget, it's not reflecting that reality yet. And that worries me.
0: It's still focused on counterterrorism? The day-to-day. Counterinsurgency?
1: And and just the crisis of the day.
0: Iran. You mentioned Iran earlier. Two fundamental problems, right? One is the strategic weapons program, the nuclear program and the missiles, and then second, their regional behavior, Mm -hmm. everything from supporting terrorism and insurgents to wanting Israel to be wiped off the face of the planet. And at the same time, a domestic situation in Iran that is perhaps one of the most interesting in a long, long time with a real struggle going on over the future of that country Mm -hmm. and whether it's going to be remain a revolutionary country or whether it's going to become a normal nation. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the problem? of Iran and what the United States needs to do, and maybe within that context, the nuclear deal and the president's decertification of it.
1: So I go back to the choice of going into Iraq and opening the Pandora's box. We used to have a situation where for many years, Iraq and Iran were mutually containing each other. They were so busy fighting and jockeying. Once we went into Iraq, we basically created the possibility of, you know, a Shia-dominated government that became very much, almost from the get-go, heavily influenced by Iran. And we really allowed Iran to now start thinking about, where else can I make gains in the region? And uh, We kind of opened up the the possibilities. So I I do believe we need to push back harder than we have been on Iranian influence in the region. But we need to do it in a way that's smart. Number one, let's keep the constraints on their nuclear program. Why would we want to remove those as a constraint for the next decade? You know, I do support a more robust effort to push back on Iran's destabilizing behavior in the region, but we have to be smart about it. First of all, We should keep the nuclear deal in place. The truth is, it's put time on the clock for Iran that, you know, in terms of the effort Iran would have to make to get to a nuclear weapon. Why wouldn't we want to keep that constraint for as long as as we can? To keep the two issues separate. Keep the two issues separate. I mean, the nuclear deal, it's not—every deal is imperfect. Every deal is the product of complex negotiations. But it has set back their program. It has constrained their program. They are abiding by the constraints as far as the IEA and our own intelligence community is concerned.
0: And our own senior officials who have testified to Congress. Yeah.
1: Why would we throw that away and suddenly give them the ability to start racing towards a nuclear weapon again? Why complicate our lives? (laughs) We've got enough to do. With. So I would focus more on what they're doing in Syria, what they're doing in Yemen, how they're trying to their support for groups like Hezbollah, and to push back there, as well as on their ballistic missile development. We have such willing partners and allies in the region who'd like a coordinated approach with us. And this has been a huge missed opportunity. You know, the President Trump, he went to the Gulf. He's talked with the israelis and they say all the right things but where is the follow up for a more concerted coalition plan to try to start constraining what do you think Iran? what do you think in
0: concrete terms we should be doing to push back
1: I think, first, we should be interdicting illegal shipments of weapons. We should be outing the Iranians for what we know they're doing. That would be very embarrassing to the regime, given its claims of ideological purity. We should be considering sanctions on some of these other activities, not not reimposing sanctions with regard to the nuclear, because they're abiding by the nuclear agreement. We should generally be making them pay some cost for their intervention for their destabilizing activities. I think it's open to debate what exactly that should look like, but I don't see a serious effort to do that. I see the misdirection of the focus on again deconstructing the nuclear deal, as opposed to saying let's keep the nuclear issue off the table for right now because it's it's contained, and let's focus our energies on building a coalition to push back on Iran on these other in these other areas. Michelle, there's been
0: little pushback on Iranian misbehavior across a long period of time. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only time that I can remember when a U.S. administration really pushed back on Iranian uh, misbehavior was at the end of the Reagan administration during the tanker wars where President Reagan made absolutely clear that the Iranians could not target commercial tankers. Mm -hmm. But there's been very little pushback beyond that. Why is that? Why, why has there been such reluctance on the part of administrations to push back? And this includes Iranian terrorist attacks against the United States. This includes Iranians providing advanced IEDs to Shia militia groups in Iraq that killed hundreds of American soldiers. And there's just been this reluctance. What, what do you think the source of that is?
1: I think the source has been different things at different times, but certainly once we were in the Iraq war, I think there was a hesitation to dramatically increase the size of the problem by taking on Iran as well. And particularly once the focus became transition out of Iraq There was a hesitation to get into anything with Iran. I think that is debatable whether we played those cards right, but it was there. I think once we were negotiating or the administration was negotiating the nuclear deal, there was a sense that we didn't want to undermine that negotiation with any... Pressure that might disempower the moderates who seem to be championing the deal. And I think there was some hope in some quarters that perhaps empowering the moderates through success in the deal would somehow have broader domestic political impact on the nature of the regime in Iran. Now, we are at this interesting point, but I think that was probably overly optimistic in terms of hoping that for that as a very near-term outcome.
0: So just a couple more questions about Iran. One of the critiques of the nuclear deal is that we had them by the neck, and we should have gotten more on the nuclear front. We should have gotten even more restrictions. We should have gotten even a better inspection regime, even though this is the most broadest and deepest inspection regime anywhere in the world but but we had them by the neck and we should have gotten more how do you react to that
1: well i mean it's always fun to armchair quarterback negotiations after the fact i think we got a lot we got what what mattered most which was we removed material we shut down centrifuges we put time on the clock so that there's they have more than a year of effort you know, to get to a weapon when we were concerned about them being within weeks to a few months of being able to get a weapon. So that's substantial. Did we have to agree to sunset clauses on some of these provisions? I don't know. I think the answer now is to not go back and try to second guess the original negotiations. The answer is to say, how do we position ourselves to ensure that we can have our European and allies and and Russia and China on board at the end of the deal when it comes time to extend and these limits. And the U.S. abrogating this unilaterally is not a good recipe for getting to that outcome.
0: It's not a good recipe for that, and it's also not a good recipe for getting them on board against their regional misbehavior, exactly. either.
1: Exactly. So we are, like, losing the forest for the trees here. Any pushback on Iran that's going to be effective has to be a coalition, and we need partners to be effective. Sort of picking a fight unnecessarily on the nuclear deal is going to undermine our effectiveness in these other areas that the administration says is important.
0: And then the other critique, let me get your reaction to this, the other critique, which is really the Netanyahu critique, which is you had them by the throat. Why didn't you include the regional misbehavior at the same time you were negotiating the nuclear deal? Yeah, I don't... All in one package.
1: I mean, I think that was probably more than the traffic would bear. I think that's overestimating the degree of leverage we had and underestimating the degree to complexity that that would have introduced and the degree of commitment of Iran to... Being a revolutionary regime, or at least elements of the regime, you know, being exporting revolution abroad, being the supporter of Shia minorities throughout the Middle East, I don't think that any degree of outside pressure would have changed that view. What we can do is impose specific costs to try to moderate the behavior in some areas. So let's uh, switch to North Korea. Sure. Another another e- another, happy e- place. <laughs> another
0: easy, easy problem to solve. What's your sense of the threat? And then what's your sense of the options we have for dealing with
1: it? Yeah. So, you know, the threat is the combination of a very unusual dictatorship that has created an extremely closed, the most closed society in the world and has brainwashed the population to believe that the Kim family is actually semi-godlike. They are deities and uh, not to be countered or messed with. <laughs> people don't understand.
0: Um, That's not an overstatement.
1: No, they are truly they have brainwashed a population.
0: When when Kim Jong-il died and there were people in the streets weeping, yes. that was real. Yeah. That was absolutely real right. for the reason that you said.
1: Yeah. So you couple that with a set of technological advances where they've clearly developed nuclear weapons. They've had those for a while. They are now on the cusp of developing a intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM. And the piece they're now working on, which is a little bit harder, is... Being able to miniaturize a weapon to put on the ICBM and be able to deliver it through the atmosphere all the way to a target in the United States. Now, the good news is they don't seem to have perfected that yet. The bad news is they've made faster progress than anybody thought they would. And so we are in a window of time where you could imagine North Korea being able to strike the United States with a nuclear weapon.
0: And you have no doubt that they'll get there. I
1: I think if eventually they can, yeah. eventually they will get there. And so I understand the reason for concern, but I don't think the administration has handled this in the best way. First of all, the presidential rhetoric and the exchange of insults back and forth between President Trump and Kim Jong-un has heightened the sense of crisis and I think created an environment where the risk of miscalculation is much higher. So at the same time, we're trying to reassure our South Korean And Japanese allies by being more present militarily in the region doing flyovers and exercises and so forth.
0: And those are all good things from your perspective. And those are
1: all good things from my perspective because you have to reassure those allies that we are committed to their defense no matter what. But the heightened rhetoric and the irresponsible rhetoric has means that it's much more likely that Kim Jong-un could misinterpret what we're doing as a show of force or reassurance as the start of an invasion or the start of a war. The second thing that concerns me me is that The administration is acting as if there's some easy military option that can solve this. If there were an easy surgical strike option that would take out the nuclear weapons and the missiles, it would have been executed already. The problem is- By
0: multiple administrations. By
1: multiple Republican and Democratic (sighs) administrations. The problem is what happens next? And we have to remember that Seoul sits right on the border with North Korea, 25 million people. civilians within artillery range, short-range artillery range of North Korea, who has thousands of over 10,000 artillery shells pointed, lots of short-range rockets. And so you have millions of South Koreans, not to mention 100,000 or more Americans, in the hostage position the folks who would experience the response from North Korea. So there's, it's hard for me to imagine a kinetic strike that doesn't escalate into an all-out war. And so then the question becomes, are you willing to go to war on the Korean Peninsula, which would involve occupying, changing the regime, policing up the nuclear weapons, very complex, very costly, very deadly. It worked so Um, well
0: in Iraq and Libya.
1: Right. Are you willing to do that to basically prevent this threat from materializing? Or should we be using our military leverage, again, to get to a negotiation that says, stop the testing, stop the development, Do not mate the weapons or deploy them as mated, nuclear weapons and the missiles, and buy some time to try to resolve this over time. So to do that,
0: to do that, we would have to give something, right? Mm -hmm. This would be a negotiation, just like our negotiations with— the Soviet Union and our negotiations with Iran, where you said, you know, this was a negotiation, this would be a negotiation. So what would you recommend to a president that we be willing to give up in order to get the North Koreans to sign up to that deal?
1: Well, I mean, we have to stop. First of all, I think we have to be clear eyed. I don't think this regime is ever going to negotiate away their nuclear weapons because it is Kim Jong Un's survival card. And so the question is, can we lower the threat, understanding that eventually, when, you know, when you're talking about the eventual reunification of the Korean Peninsula, some larger political settlement, that will the nuclear weapons disposition will be included in that. But in the short term, we have to stop the ICBM program, stop the deployment of a nuclear ICBM. That's the near-term goal. I think we could say, look, we are willing to tone down the rhetoric. Number two, we are willing to make sure that the defensive engagement we have with our allies, which will continue, is not overly provocative. We are willing to... Consider, I think this is a Jim Clapper idea, pretty interesting. We're willing to open an interest section. It's not full diplomatic recognition, but we are willing to establish a channel for dialogue with you longer term and so that we can keep talking and keep seeing if we can ratchet down the sense of crisis. I mean, there are a whole range of things we could explore. Again, this doesn't solve the problem. But it buys time to solve the problem because ultimately you either start building a deterrence and containment structure aiming for a long-term negotiation that ends the regime or you are on the path to go to war in a very costly manner to get to the same objective. And that's the If you the can even get
0: to that objective, right? If, even if the military objective is attainable, which it might not be in terms of right. destroying all the weapons right. and missiles.
1: And so I, I think that is the fundamental choice that we keep avoiding in the debate. It's interesting, if you go back to history, it's interesting to read some of the writings at the time when Mao's China, when Communist China was acquiring nuclear weapons for the first time. Huge American debate about... Whether we should launch a preemptive strike, go to war with China to prevent their acquisition of nuclear weapons, I think it's we're past that with North Korea; they have them. But I do think there's some some interesting parallels worth drawing there. Okay, Russia. Yeah.
0: How do you think? How do you think about Russia with regard to everything they do in the world um, that is designed to undermine us? Why do they do that? What is Putin after? What do we have to do to deter him? How do you think about all of that? And then we'll come to the the issue yeah. of their interference in, in our democracy.
1: Yeah. I think Putin's number one objective is to stay in power and to rule Russia. But I do think he, to do that. Given that he hasn't been very successful in meeting the economic needs of his people or raising the quality of life in Russia, it's actually going in the other direction. I think what he's appealing to is this very deeply and widely held sense of grievance among Russians that Russia was mistreated after the end of the Cold War. They have not been recognized as the great power they are. They were, you know, marginalized, taken advantage of, blah, blah, blah. He's tapping into that and sort of distracting attention from domestic woes to external, we have the big bad feeding United States. He's feeding the nationalism. And so I think what he's trying to do is first take moves that reestablish Russia as a great power that others have to contend with. The invasion of Crimea and Ukraine, the projection of power into Syria and reestablishing a foothold, a toehold in the Middle East. And then I think he's also trying to discredit democracy. We saw it first in a series of actions across um, Central and Eastern Europe, intervening in the media, in the political parties, in the elections of a number of European countries in the last few years. And now, in, in our own recent presidential election, we saw that same KGB playbook be used to try to influence the outcome of our elections, or at least to sow dissent, to amplify the dissent, the division, the chaos, um, to undermine the legitimacy and viability of democracy. That's his ultimate goal. So the big picture,
0: all right, let's come back to the specifics of what he's doing here, because I want to ask you a specific question about that. But big picture, how do we deter him?
1: I think the number one thing is he has to start paying a price for for some of this. We really haven't made him pay much of a price for, particularly for the intervention in our elections, you know, expelling a few diplomats and intelligence officers, uh, shutting down a facility or two, that's not really, slap it's a slap wrist, on the wrist. From his perspective. So we need to develop our own playback for like, when we are seriously attacked using cyber means, what is our, what are our response options? I think we also have to be willing to be asymmetric in terms of exposing some of the deep corruption that he is a part of in the Russian system to take a little bit of a more offensive approach towards him and his standing, if you will. But I also think we need to be making the investments to ensure that he knows where the lines are, that our commitment to NATO remains solid, that we're making the necessary investments militarily to uphold that commitment, that we're not going anywhere in terms of keeping our Article 5 commitments. And then also in the Middle East we need to try to be clear in our commitments there. And there, we don't have a lot of leverage, frankly, in the Syrian negotiations. But I do think we have to work with Russia to get to some kind of negotiated solution.
0: As you know better than anybody, deterrence has two pieces to it. It has an imposed cost, yep. which is what we're talking about. Yep. And then it has a denied objective. Yep. Right. Yep. And in terms of his interference in our democracy, which is it's absolutely clear now was yep. not just about the election, right? It's yep. it, it's ongoing to this very day. Yeah. Right, about trying to play in the divisions in American society. Yeah. What can we do, right? to make it more difficult for him to be successful in what he's doing?
1: Well, I think we do need to harden our own defenses and build our own resilience. And that is basic things like, I would love to see a national initiative that puts together a partnership between national, state, local government, and the tech industry and the media industry to say, we're not going to stand for this as a nation, and we're going to all work together between now and 2020 to make him much less successful if he tries this again. The Trump administration has been so busy denying that this happened or denying that it had any impact that they've failed to pick up that ball and lead putting together such an initiative. But we need to harden ourselves from a cyber perspective. Every campaign, every party organization, every candidate needs to have some good advising on like solid cybersecurity of how you protect yourselves and avoid being hacked. I think the fact that the French did it so well with the Macron campaign and the sophisticated of some of what they did on the cyber realm is evidence that it can be done if you put some forethought and resources into it.
0: In terms of the media and the the high-tech sector and the government working together, will the politics allow that?
1: Well, I think we need to get to the point where, You've you have actually know,
0: worked this and thought yeah, about I it. I mean, and-
1: the Russians were very good at, at exploiting social media platforms like Facebook, like Google, like Twitter. But this is not a social media platform problem. This is a national security problem. And I think if we had a cooperative approach that says we're going to do everything we can to get more transparency around who's behind these ads, the tech industry is going to do everything they can to shut down fake accounts or bots, you know, Accounts that are machines, not people. We could make a list of cooperative endeavors that I'm sure you could get people working on together. I think there's evidence that they already are. But I mean, if we go into these, a very divisive period where it's sort of the government against the tech industry, we're playing right into Russia's hands. We're giving them another gift of sowing division. Both parties have to be part of the solution. And I think a big part is the federal government instituting a grants program, like a block grant program, that actually allows state and local jurisdictions to have some help in hardening their electoral systems, whether it's the voter list, or the actual machines that we use in voting. We have three years to figure this out, and we're not using the time well. But there is a strategy that we could all work on together. I think right now we're at the risk of playing right into Russia's hands by just pointing fingers at each other.
0: And then China, long-term, long-term relationship between the United States and China, Mm -hmm. right? It seems the outcomes range from cooperation on one end of the spectrum to conflict on the other. Mm -hmm. How do we manage this relationship in a way that maximizes the former and minimizes the latter?
1: You know, I think the China relationship is always going to have... Big elements of cooperation, on economic matters in some cases, non-proliferation matters, I would have said before climate change, <laughs> but also areas of serious competition. Also in the economic domain, certainly for influence in the region, in terms of like, what are the rules of the road going to be in Asia in the future? We wrote those rules after World War II. Our absence as we pull out of things like TPP or as we fail to show up in the political circles and discussions in the region, that leaves a vacuum. And China is all too eager, to, especially President Xi, to step into that vacuum and try to rewrite the rules in ways that benefit China and disadvantage the U.S. So. We have got to play more in this region. It's not just about military posture. Certainly, we need to invest to maintain our capabilities there. But it's got to be diplomacy. It's got to be an economic vision for the region, because otherwise, China will become the exclusive dominant power, and that will not be in our interests. And we will not see like the results of that over time.
0: They believe strongly that because we got to write the rules, that we wrote them in a way that benefited us. So Mm -hmm. they think when they get to write the rules, they will write them in a way that benefits them, right? Complete misunderstanding of of where we were coming from after the Second World War.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there should be dialogue with them. There are opportunities, even in areas like cyberspace, where they've clearly crossed a number of lines with us. There are certain things nobody has done, and there may be ways to negotiate some norms and some red lines of things like we're not going to attack each other's critical infrastructure with cyber because that would be disastrous and we each would take it as an act of war against the other. I actually think that, at least in the near to medium term, China doesn't want open conflict with the United States. So let's use that to make them think twice about some of their more provocative actions.
0: So this is a, Michelle, is a little bit outside your sweet spot. So maybe it's a little, it's a little unfair, um, but it's about our own country, Mm -hmm. not about the world. Senator Corker recently said that the biggest threat to the United States is not North Korea or ISIS or Russia or China. It's ourselves. It's the very serious problems we have here, income inequality, wealth inequality our political divisions, the inability of our political leaders to compromise and advance us as an economy and as a society. Does that resonate with you? And what's your sense of what we need to do to get ourselves back on track?
1: It does resonate with me. I think that the most fundamental threats to our well-being as a nation are coming from our internal divisions. And the fact that we're not seeing a president or congressional leaders or other societal leaders who are managing to try to bring people together to have an honest dialogue about the state of things. All of the tweets and the distractions and the self-created crises basically take bandwidth away from having the fundamental discussions and trying to address some of these major, major problems, whether it's, you know, just the lack of opportunity in the inner city, or whether it's the dislocation that people have felt in areas where there's coal mine, or there used to be major manufacturing. Americans are hurting. People are feeling like the dream of that your children will be better off than you were if they just work hard. That's slipping away. And that is something we have to address. And I don't see the leadership Happening, and I think whoever figures out how to address that in an empathetic and compelling and truthful, fact-based way will be the person who can really have a chance at being the next president of the United States.
0: Do you see anybody who? who I think it's early. Comes I, think it's, to I think it's too. I think <laughs> I it's too some, early. I want some hope here. <laughs> I think there
1: are a lot of people trying to crack the code on this, but and there are some amazing voices at the community level and at a frankly in the next generation that may not be quite ready to run for president, but who are community leaders in their own right. And again, you can find people who have that vision. It's a matter of really making sure that they are empowered and have a platform. We need a positive vision. We need a way forward. We can't just allow A negative kind of, I think the deconstruction applies not only in foreign policy, but what's happening here at home. We can't survive destroying what's come before. We have to have a way of building something positive for the future. And
0: we need need leaders with deep integrity. Yes. General Kelly, when he walked into the White House press room, demonstrated, I thought, that kind of integrity. Mm. We need more of that. Mm. So let me just finish up here. Thank you so much for your time, but let me just finish up here by asking about your future. President Obama asked you to be his his secretary of defense, and you couldn't do it at that time.
1: I Um, had a sick child who was really hurting and just was not the right time for our family to take that on, and I was very, very sad to miss that opportunity.
0: And then um, General Mattis asked you to be the deputy Mm -hmm. secretary of defense in this administration, and you were not able to say yes either.
1: Right. Different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge fan of Secretary Mattis, and and he appealed to my sense of duty, which is very strong. But I worried that, and I think rightly so now, given all the evidence that my sense of what is right for the nation, my sense of values would not be aligned with this administration, that even if I came in, I wouldn't last very long. (laughs) I'd have to uh, resign at some point out of protest for the directions they're going. And Well,
0: I just wanted to raise those because there's a very large number of people, including me, who hope to see you back in government at some point because you have a tremendous amount to give your nation, I believe.
1: Well, thank you very much. I do have the public service bug, but I've learned over time that there are lots of ways to serve. You can be in government. You can also try to find ways to serve outside of government. So
0: One of the things I've found in my retirement life is that because the strength of your economy and the strength of your society are so important to your national security that those people in those parts of our society, in the private sector and mm-hmm. in civil society are contributing every bit as much to our mm-hmm. national security as you and I did when we were in government.
1: Absolutely. And in the, whether it's the think tank world and academia, you know, people who are devoted to educating the next generation, launching them, giving them a sense of the importance of public service. There are so many ways to make this nation a better place to make it stronger to make us be able to live up to our own values and aspirations there's so many ways to do that that it's just a matter of continuing to focus on finding those
0: and then the last question was about was about CNAS. Mm-hmm. you were a co-founder mm-hmm. You've been on the board. Um, mm-hmm. You now run the place. Mm-hmm. It's a remarkable institution. I know you care deeply about mm-hmm. it. What would you want the listeners to know about CNAS?
1: I think CNAS is a good example of a place that nobody knew needed to exist until it did. Why would Washington need, need another think tank? But what we did is took a different approach. Number one, go to the pain. If there's an issue that's consequential for the United States, it can't be too controversial to touch. We're going to go to the, what matters. Number two, create an environment where people really, Republicans, Democrats, civilians, military, there's a safe civil space for debating what really matters to this country. In that kind of holding that ground, I would say, is even more important now than ever when it's been shrinking. And the third is understanding that part of the mission is the human capital piece. It is growing and developing the next generation. We have our first next gen fellow who's now a member of Congress, Matt Gallagher. It's we have launched fellows into every branch of government. Secretary Gates quipped in his book that you know why would I need to go give a speech at CNAS? I just call a staff meeting because so <laughs> many of his staff were coming from. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that he, that growing the next gen piece and being really true to what that means in terms of taking risks on behalf of that mission sometimes is part of what really has made a difference in this place. Michelle, thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs>
0: That was Michelle Flournoy. This is Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next time.